series called Restored. I want to start a new series called Restored. Um, does anyone know where Derek hides the pens? <laughs> Pardon? Oh, his brother should know. <laughs> it's not necessary, so sorry. You know where it is, Marcus? Thanks. Yeah, of all the places. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. Okay, so starting a new series called Restored. Um, yeah, kind of excited about this. And this is just the intro. Um, so, if you could think of God having a master plan then this is what God's master plan has been for the last little while. And his master plan is, I, God, am bringing, I, God, am bringing back, I, God, am bringing the world back, I, God, am bringing the world back into a forgiven relationship with myself, into a forgiven relationship with myself. Each line that I write today is so potent that I have been going over these notes um, without exaggeration about 10 or 11 times and I still can't wrap my head around it. Why am I telling you that? Because if you can spend time wrapping your head around it, it'll really help the church. Um, so, uh, write, perhaps this is one of those times when you can write and learn, because sometimes that's easier. I, God, am bringing, if, if God has a master plan that he's been engaged in for the last while, it is this, that I, God, am bringing the world back into a forgiven relationship with myself, and I'm putting away, or setting aside, and I'm putting away Everything that alienates, that, that, that alienates or makes an enemy of man, alienates or makes a man an enemy. And in the process, I give multiple opportunities for people to respond. I don't think he calls us folks uh, for people, or maybe he does, people to respond. So that's, that's his master plan, and that has been what he's been doing for a while. Second uh, Corinthians 5, uh, 17 to 20, speaks of it as uh, not reckoning or counting their sins against them. And so... Sorry, I'll repeat these lines a few times. But the master plan of God for the last little while has been, I, God, am bringing the world back into a forgiven relationship with myself. With myself, put in a with there. And I'm putting away everything that uh, alienated them, that was meant, uh, that caused enmity. I'm putting it away, and I'm giving man multiple opportunities to respond. This is God's plan. 
Now here's what uh, God wants of the church in terms of this plan. God's plan for the church calls us to be a microcosm of this. If this is God's plan, he wants the church or the people of God to be a microcosm and a demonstration of what a people who are forgiven and restored look like. That's, that's, that's how the church fits into this plan. God's plan calls for the church to become a microcosm of and a demonstration of this cosmic reconciliation that he has worked through the death of Christ. All things have been made new. The old has passed away. The new has come. Creation groans for the day when even all that has been subjected to futility will become new that the sons of God will be manifested, that the old heaven and earth will pass away, everything will become new. But while we wait for that, God's plan is, I've been calling a people to myself, and let's just take this body now. I've been calling a people to myself who on Sundays meet under this roof, and I want them to be a microcosm of, or a sample of, and a demonstration of, what it would look like when a people are bought, washed, forgiven and restored. What would that look like? That is God's intent with the church, and it isn't a new intent. If you go to Exodus uh, 16, um, sorry, Exodus 19, verse 3 and verse 6, it says there, God is speaking to Israel ages ago, thousands and thousands of years ago. He says to them, listen, I bore you up on eagles' wings, and I brought you out of the bondage of Egypt so that I could call you to myself as a kingdom of priests. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, he says um, uh, that, but you are a peculiar people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, so that you may show forth my praises. The whole intent is, can I present to the world a microcosm or a sample that they can come and taste and see, ah, so this is what a community of believers looks like. And that's why I'm calling this series Restored. Because what are the characteristics of a restored people? The problem is the world is looking or seeking to find God's address. And they're not finding it because he is invisible in the people that he happily resides in. And the people that he resides in expect them to come to the church for two hours on a Sunday to find him. And that ain't going to work. People are seeking, eh? People are seeking God. But they're not finding him in the community that he actually resides in 24-7. He's invisible amongst them. And so they are expected then to come for two hours to pilgrim at 1.40 on a Sunday, which is a highly inconvenient time for anybody on any day, particularly Sundays. When God has always desired the church to be a microcosm and a demonstration of what a people who are forgiven and restored look like. Any questions before we go on? People won't come into a building to find him when he actually resides in a community, but unfortunately he's invisible. Any questions before we go on?
Hey, uh, Marcus, any chance that you can locate the eraser too? It was? Yeah. Any questions, guys? This is super important to understand, eh? That this is the master plan. So to accomplish God's plan, to accomplish God's plan, the church must first show, the church must, church must first show what it is. The church must first show what it is. As in, we are a restored community made up of uh, a community of people. We are a restored community of God or community of people, whatever the word be. The church must sh first show what it is, and then the church must. show what it does. And what it does is good works. So if you want to accomplish this plan, if God wants to accomplish this plan through Acts 29, Acts 29 will have to first show the world around it what it is. We will have to show the world that this is the sample or the taste of a restored, redeemed people of God. This is what we taste like. This is the demonstration of all the things that were accomplished when Jesus said it is finished. Come into any of our houses, check any of our marriages, check any of our parenting, check any of our widows, our singles, our spinsters, our divorcees, and you will see what it is when a restored people who are in relationship with the living God are like, this must be what I aim for, that we aim for. When God was taking Israel to the wilderness, his intent was, can I show them that this is what a nation chosen by God looks like? Doesn't matter where I take them, this is what a nation chosen by God looks like. And so, that is the focus of God, that, is, that should be the focus of the one who's leading the church, and that should be the focus of the church itself. First, what we are, and second, what we do. And this is where Jesus actually says, and we always claim the scripture for ourselves when actually Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. We quickly take it and make it our own little purpose, because we live in a highly individualized Christian society. Sure, your good works uh, and purpose is important, but it is so insignificant if it isn't part of the larger picture. And so we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship um, prepared for good works before the foundations of the earth. First, the church must show who we are, what it is that we are. And second, what it is we do.
I mean, when you actually look at it, what does a restored community look like? What should a restored community look like? Just imagine these things. I'm just throwing out a few things. Do we still have a problem with forgiveness, uh, with being forgiven? Not even forgiveness. Do we still have a problem with being forgiven? We sing these songs, but when we do things wrong, how do we handle guilt and sin? How do we handle being forgiven? How about knowing the Father and behaving like sons and daughters? How far have we gotten in that? What does a grace-filled life look like? What does spirit-empowered mean for Acts 29? What, it is, what is it to be living the life of the Holy Spirit here on earth? What does servanthood look like? What does joy look like? How well do we process things of the world, of life, and of all other things through the word? How much does the word affect the way we think? How about signs and miracles? How are we doing in that? These are characteristics of a people that have been restored and have a living relationship with God. What it is must first be presented before we indulge in good works because what we do normally is head for good works but we forget that there is another thing that is more important which is what, or what the community should become like. Christ will never use the church as a tool. We keep saying that church is a primary vehicle that Christ wants to use in the, on the earth. God never used Jesus as a primary vehicle or a tool. Jesus simply loves the church. He will never use the work. He will never use the church as a tool to accomplish his tasks. He is so interested in us becoming a certain kind of people before he will use us for good works. Ephesians 4, 11 to 17 talks about this again and again and again. That we may attain the full stature of Christ. What does this relationship of a restored people with the living God look like? How do I, I can't even say I, because it has to be us. How do we, uh, do we walk as once forgiven? I mean, there's that song, um, um, we then shall, what, what's it called? I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. What does that look like? How much guilt and shame and fear do we carry? That's just basic 101, huh? I remember I had these huge debts till about eight or nine years ago. And I remember going to this lady's house and she used to keep a tab of all the money that I had to pay them back. Uh, and uh, this was in the other church I used to be at. And finally, one day, I paid off the last dollar and she called me home. I didn't even know that I'd paid the whole thing up. And so she and her husband called me home and uh, she pulled out this paper and showed me that I'd paid everything off, I'd paid extra. And she said, Jacob, just wanted to call you so that we can tear this up together. And as she tore it up, you didn't know the, the relief I felt at a debt being completely paid off. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy knowing that my debts are paid. That alone would make this community look different. The way we handle guilt, shame, fear, pain is still lacking. My hope is that over the next few weeks, we can try and understand that a restored community should look a certain way so that it becomes a sample, so that someone can lick the ice cream and say, aha, so that's vanilla, which I dislike anyways. Um, that should be what it is, both a demonstration and a microcosm.
This was what Paul was trying to do when he was writing his epistles to the different churches, saying, church, you've got to be this way. Most of his um, um, letters would be what? Uh, you've been uh, rescued from an old way. This is the new way of living. Put on Christ. Parents, this is the way you need to behave. Young people, this is the way you need to behave. Old people, this is the way you need to behave. Marriages, this is the way you need to behave. Servants, this is the way you need. He actually used to say old people um, in a nicer way. And he, he had these segments for everybody. And then he would say, this is how you overcome the devil too. And then he would end up with, if you're suffering now, know that these sufferings are temporary because there is a new life waiting. His intent was always, can I build a community here in Ephesus, here in Lystra, here in Derby, here in Colossus, so that anyone comes and tastes and they'll know, oh, shucks, this is such a cool alternative to what Caesar is offering. And it starts, surprisingly, not with the individual. It starts as a church, then it trickles down to each family, and then it trickles down to the individual. We've got it in our heads that this is a democracy, so it starts from the person and builds itself up. It never builds itself up from one person. Because we've relied so heavily on let's start with the individual and build up, this is why we only have superstars. Forgiveness. How about righteousness? What does righteous living look like? What does spirit-empowered living look like? I'm not talking about one person. I'm not talking about a Diana or a Sue or a Dano or an Aaron. No! I'm talking about what does it look like when a whole sample can be taken. I mean, uh, the, the cool thing with, with taking water from four different parts of the ocean is that the composition of the water you take in four different buckets will be the same. And if you think it's not, don't argue because I'm not scientific and I might lose the argument. <laughs> but basically, if you pull out water from four different parts of the ocean you'll find that they all have the same composite. Why? Because that's the way it is. And the earth is flat. So, <laughs> so uh, what does it look like when... Uh, Chad taught about this at the women's conference, and uh, it is such an important point. Guys, what sanctifies us is the word. What sanctifies us is the word, meaning what separates us is the word of God. How does the word of God separate us? The word of God separates us, separates us this way. We become a people who process everything through the word. Not through Jacob's interpretation, not through some organization, not through Greek, not through Hebrew, but by looking at the tapestry of scripture, we realize, ah, shucks, this is how we need to think about this particular thing. We start processing the world, the things of life, and things around us through the word. And the moment we do that, we become a people who are united, set apart by the word. And here's what Jesus says will happen if you do that. The world will hate you. Because the world hates anything and anyone and anybody who does not think like them. Sanctify by them by the word, Jesus says. And then as he goes on, he says, and the world will hate you. Because you have started processing and thinking along the lines of the word, not along some of your own fancy interpretations. Suddenly, it doesn't matter whether you're living in India, Africa, South America, or uh, Canada. The word applies the same. What does a restored community look like in terms of sacrificially loving? What does it look like? Um, ah, here's another one. Fear-banishing love. 
What does a community look like when they know they are perfectly loved and there is no fear and there is no torment? What would that even look like? None of this will be reached in a day, but can we progressively mature towards it? Together. Fear banishing love would be a characteristic of this community because it very clearly says that perfect love casts out fear and I have loved you perfectly. Therefore, you should not be continuing in fear, Jacob, because fear carries in it torment and anyone who has fear in his relationships or in his relationship with God has not been perfectly loved or has not recognized it or realized it. So what would it look like? These are the things that the world has. We are only slightly better and it ain't good enough. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God is not interested in getting a horse that can run fast and whip it to run faster. When he makes us, he gives us wings so that we are like unicorns that have the ability to fly. It ain't a fair race. Being better than the world ain't Christianity. It's self-help, positive thinking, Tony Robbins. That's why I have a problem with some of the guys who appear on TV promoting a self-help, you are wonderful message. Because all that makes you is a little more wonderful than the rest of the world. And when you settle and I settle for that Christianity, ouch. What does it look like not to chase after what was guaranteed in the Garden of Eden? What does it look like when a people became, become proclaimers of the gospel? What does it look like when they are exhibitors of life and godliness? What does it look like when they are servant-like? What does it look like when they are joyful? What does it look like when signs and miracles are not unusual or unexpected? What does it look like when a body continuously matures? What does it look like when the community is apostolic in terms of it being sent out to different places? What does it look like when they are generous? What does it look like when they have authority over the devil? What does it look like when they engage in good works? This is what a restored community should look like. What if two years from now, we get somewhere. It's a long process, but what if two years from now? I, I always tell uh, Blessy that I wish kids were born at the age of nine because they would be easy to handle. Um, like they get born as babies and then overnight they grow up into nine. <laughs> and she always says that you would miss out on the growing years and that those years are precious. I still can't understand it, but, but I believe it. Yeah, I've heard. And so, <laughs> and so um, this will take time. But there must be absolutely no doubt as to where we are heading with this. We've got to keep treading this way. Because if this is God's plan, and please challenge me if it is not, This, if this is God's plan, then this is the only heading we have. That he wants to build a people who are a microcosm or a demonstration of what a people in relationship with the living God actually look like. This was the whole idea of Israel. This is the whole idea of the church. It has really nothing to do with you and everything to do with the world. For someone else we exist, not for ourselves.
So the hope is over the next few months that God will give us the wisdom to discover and somehow begin to live the life of the restored. Any questions before we go on? Any questions, guys? The problem with what would Jesus do was we didn't know what he would do because we didn't know what the word said or meant. So what would Jesus do became a slogan that didn't help because we didn't know what Jesus does. So we came up with our own versions of what would Jesus do. But when you look at the scriptures like Gisela is saying, then you understand this is what would Jesus do. And that is how you begin to process your thinking so that you see life through the word. Then it doesn't matter what your opinion is. You don't have a choice. That's the cool thing about this. I love the fact that we don't have choices. I mean, try ordering a coffee at Starbucks, man. We don't have choices. I asked uh, Aaron to get me... What did I ask you to get me? A Corduzio. I drank it in Mexico, and it's this mix of espresso and chocolate. But uh, he got me a mocha, because there is no Corducio in <laughs> Vancouver. But uh, I love the fact that we don't have choices. This is how the word asks me to process and think. This is my only choice. I have a choice in terms of disobeying it, but I don't have any other choice. This is how the word asks me to think. And as you begin to read it again and again and again, and one of the things that I've learned from Chad is not to read my little portions, but to read the entire uh, book and then come into little portions because it gives you a better idea of what is happening. Because most of the scriptures we personalize to a point where they become pointless. True. 13. But if you ask Chris, she might say 14. I just, I think you're totally right. I just think that a whole lot of things we were doing, we were doing because we stumbled into it. Now uh, it's beginning to make sense. So it's like Christopher Columbus. Um, didn't know where he was going, but now we have a sense of where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate using this word, which is why I'm avoiding using it, but I have to use it now. And so I won't say it, I'll write it, because this word's been used so often, I don't like using it anymore. We are more. What, will I have to pronounce it Sue, or can you read it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Intentional. Yeah. 
a few other things about this community that we're building, because I used to hear about the church being a community, church being a community, and I used to think, ah, oh, shucks, there comes the community word again, because it was as common as intentional, and, uh, and it seemed to mean that everybody has to be really nice to each other and help each other out and help people move if you have a pickup and thank God, I didn't buy one. But the point was, <laughs> there's much more to this idea of community than that. So here are a few things that this community must be. One, it is a community It is a community that learns to process life, learns to process life things of life and the world through the word. That is a distinctive factor of this community. Yeah? Why? Because that will then allow the watching world to have an undistorted picture of Christ when they encounter his claims. Jesus heals, show me. Jesus loves, show me. Jesus um, gives, show me. Jesus answers prayer, show me. Jesus thinks pure, show me. Jesus forgives, show me. Jesus gives joy, show me. It is a community that learns and it's a long process of learning. And it never ends because we're constantly progressing towards maturity. It is a community that learns to process life, the things of life, and the world. And this is where we can be absolutely confident as it says in First Peter Second Peter 1, it says that God has given us precious promises that are sufficient for life and godliness. That every situation I deal with in terms of life and the way to live it godly is provided for me in the word where I can begin to think a certain way. Think like God. Think like God. And in thinking like God... Be able to handle life, be, ha be able to handle the things of life, be able to handle the world. And in the process, be hated because now I do not think anymore like the world. In the process, become one because the one thing that unites us, sanctifies us and sets us apart and unites us is the word. You might think it is love, but it is not. It is through the word that even that happens. Because it is through the word that I understand what love looks like. This is what Jesus tried to come and do. He was saying, hey, let me first show you what it is like and then I will show you what you must do. And therefore everything that his father said in terms of the word, he began to show. And after he showed them, he said, now go do likewise. And he helped them do the works too. And since we are the body of Christ and follow the head, this is the same principle. Then the watching world begins to have an undistorted picture of Christ when they encounter his claims. Questions, thoughts?
So when you have a situation that is unnegotiable, come and throw it at me just so I can go and look for an answer and not give you a pat. This is what I sense the Holy Spirit saying. Guys, we got to move now from this is what I sense the Holy Spirit saying to this is what the Word of God says and this is what I sense the Holy Spirit saying. It's got to be both. Because this is what I sense the Holy Spirit saying is great. It's super important. It's spontaneous. It is rhema. But there is also the logos that now we have to develop things out of. Where I'm going through this situation in my life, what should I do? And I ask the Holy Spirit, and I say, the Holy Spirit says, this is the key. Great, that is the key that will help you open the door. But what if it happens again? So that it should not happen again. Here is what the word says. Here is how you process it. Then you have both. And so even what we teach in the house churches has to change. Because I think given this context, it's not effective enough. It has to be more systematic. I hate systematic, but who cares? You don't have a choice. I'm glad that I can keep changing. I pray that it still continues when I'm 60 and 70 and 80. The next thing this community is, I got three of them. The next thing this community is, it is a community that provides a context for the individual, for the individual, and the body to mature, to mature. In the sense that this doesn't mean that we abandon what God has uniquely uh, created you for in the body. We don't abandon that. That keeps increasing. That keeps growing. There must be, um, it must be a community that loves moving together but also uh, looks at each person just as Christ does. One of the things, I don't know who said it in uh, Sao Paulo, we looked at this mass of people doing drugs and I think it was Sheldon who said, and yet the way Jesus looks at them is he calls them by name. He has a special name for them. He had plans for them. He had written their days down before they were even uh, formed and he hopes, loves, and expects the best of them every day when they wake up. And that, 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 that I made you, I formed you before your eyes, uh, before your yeah, whatever well, parts were even formed. It still holds true. So it has to be a community where the individual still matures and there's room for corporate maturity. It is also a community that is a base for penetrating other communities. And nations. As we mature, the intent is now that we matured, we must now use Acts 29 as a base to go to, to send people into other communities and other nations so that what we've experienced can now be sampled by others. This must be how we think. When you go on a holiday, when you go on a business trip, think like this. I'm a sample, I'm a sign, I'm a pointer. It takes time to think like this, but if we continuously wake up every morning and think like this, it becomes habitual.
one of the things that's been happening in my life over the last little while is I'm less and less, uh, 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 not less and less, I'm becoming, I'm becoming more and more confident of who Jacob is, um, who Jacob really is. And uh, so my inadequacy, my external inadequacies are not bothering me as much. They haven't gone away, but they're not bothering me as much. And it, it, tremendous, it helps tremendously, guys. All of us have external inadequacies. Some of them are imagined, some of them are real. All of us have external defects and flaws. And by external, I mean anything outside of the spirit, of your spirit. All of us have external defects and flaws, and we use coping mechanisms to hide them. And maybe get to a point where, where this idea of maturity is where you begin to realize inside you that this is who I am becoming. And the external defects and inadequacies become less important. And as that happens, you will find that you become less limited. And more becomes possible. Otherwise, our external defects and inabilities will always stop us from taking the next big step. You will always hesitate. You will dream at night that you will be a warrior tomorrow. You get up in the morning and you go back into the wine press. Because your name is just Gideon. To be mature at the end of the day is to conform to the stature of Christ, who in his external uh, persona was very non-handsome, non-attractive, uh, um, nobody, comes from a poor family, works on stone and wood, has a huge family to take care of, spends 30 years in absolute um, hiddenness. Nothing about him is attractive. Nobody came to him because of his charisma. There was nothing about him that was worth looking at. Isaiah 52 and so on talk about it. To be mature is to be conformed to the stature of Christ somewhere inside me so that the externals now don't matter. My externals are the result of the sins of the world. My internal person is so because of the death and resurrection of Christ. I have a brand new spirit, man. And I got the Holy Spirit living in my spirit. If, and the more I mature there, the more I understand the enormity of what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, may your eyes be open, may you be enlightened so that you can see the width and the breadth and the depth of what Christ and his resurrection power has done for you. The more you grasp it, and I don't even know how to grasp it, but a daily pushing towards it allows you to grasp it. That's a strange thing. With children, you see this. With children, you see this. You hang a little toy over them. And day after day after day, and I'm sure you've seen this with Shiloh, he'll reach towards it, reach towards it. One of the videos I still carry on my phone is the one of Matt standing, sitting at the top of the steps and Shiloh making his way up the steps. I showed some parents that and they said, this is very normal. What do I know? I thought it was fascinating, this little kid going up the steps finally into his father's arms. They keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching. The way to maturity is to keep reaching. Where we lose out on maturity is we stop reaching. I just can't understand why we adults lose that. We stop reaching. We put a circle around us and say, we have reached, this is good. One day, perhaps more, but this is it. And the moment you stop reaching, maturity stops regardless of how great the teaching is. It's a falling bike. It's like the beach where the sand goes from under your feet. 
You've got to keep reaching, guys. You must die reaching. All of us should die with our hands stretched out like this. And rigor mortis sets in and they have to build a new coffin for you. I'll put a hole in the coffin. Yeah. Don't stop reaching. It is the end of maturity. Do you guys remember Hulk Hogan? Just when he's completely out, a little hand will come out and the finger will stop moving and you know Hulk Hogan's back. Keep reaching out, man. You're on the floor, there's Andre the Giant sitting on you and your hard hand starts moving. If those terms are not familiar, read your Bible. <laughs> One last time. It's a community, and this is the last point for now. And I think we'll end now because it's too heavy. I've got another set to go, but we'll do it next time. It is a community that, it is a community. It is a community that, it is a community that. I'll write the rest out properly. That engages, it is a community that engages in the Ministry of Reconciliation, engages in the Ministry of Reconciliation. I'll explain it, these are big words, but they're actually very simple in their meaning. And the message of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20, if someone can read that. Okay, Nick, one more time. Even louder. Thank <laughs> you.
Yeah. It is a community that engages in the Ministry of Reconciliation. And what is the Ministry of Reconciliation? Letting people know that God has been for the last 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years been in the business of bringing a people into a forgiven relationship with him through Christ. This is the Ministry of Reconciliation. And it is a very, very simple ministry. Everything that else that happens in today's charismatic Christianity is supposed to be a follow-on, an add-on to this main message. But all the add-ons have taken on center stage and the Ministry of Reconciliation has gone out of the window. It is very simple. I have been trying for 2,000 or 3,000 years, particularly since my son said it is finished, I have been trying to bring the world into a forgiven relationship with myself, forgetting their alienation and the reasons for the alienation, forgiving their enmity, and giving them multiple opportunities to respond. This is what I've been doing, and this is what I have raised the people up for, called the church. This is what I use you for. Therefore, this is the ministry of reconciliation, and this is the message of reconciliation. You cannot do the ministry of reconciliation without the message of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation is, I do not count your sins against you anymore. But given that I don't reckon your sins anymore, I still want you to take the personal choice of responding. And when you respond, you become part of this restored community that lives in a forgiven relationship with the living God. But how will they know it if they have not seen it? And we thought it was about going out and preaching. How will they go if you do not send? Remember that Romans 10 thing? But it is also if I am sent, you must taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just hear and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now you understand what apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists are supposed to do. Ephesians 4.12 puts it this way. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what is the work of ministry? This. My job, and we'll talk about my job next week, because there are a list of things you must expect of me for the next three to five years. One of my main jobs is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That I must get us to be well-versed in the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation under all circumstances, amongst all kinds of people, Greek, Scythian, barbarian, Jew, Gentile. And this is not about crusades and preaching. The days of crusades are really, really over. It is one-on-one. -on -one. In your streets, in your sphere of influence, in your social network, in the places you frequent, in the stage of life you are in. This is where the ministry of reconciliation happens because Jesus has always been relational. And a crusade is not relational. It worked for a people who had still an idea of their Christian roots and there is no country left on the earth where they have an idea of their Christian roots. Everything Jesus does is relational. Why should he stop in this one main thing that he has been trying to accomplish for years? Why would he make it impersonal?
I'm not saying don't participate in a crusade. I'm just saying choose the more excellent way. I used to be so frightened of this part, because eh? I used to think, I'm not very good at it. I don't know how to do this crusade thing. I don't know how to start, stand on a soapbox in Hyde Park and preach to people. It would scare the heebie-jeebies out of me. And yet, to find out finally that the Ministry of Reconciliation is sitting with one or two in my social network, oh, that I can do. Till they'll beg to leave and I won't let them go till they get born again. But, but, but the point is, this is what you're aiming at. This is the reason for our existence, guys. This is the reason for our existence. And these are the things that we will be rewarded for. Well done, good and faithful servant. A good and faithful servant is one who figures out what his master is doing. <laughs> not one who works hard, not one who um, uh, achieves much. It is simply about what is my master doing? Am I doing that? That is a good and faithful servant. So we'll stop there, but I want us to go over the whole thing uh, uh, without um, me preaching. So uh, 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 let me just ask questions and answer in your own stammering, um, unsophisticated, uh, mistake-filled way. And I meant that as a compliment.